Welcome to Starkville Church of God. This is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you, strengthens you, and fills you with God's love so you can share with others. Enjoy the message. Beware of the traveler. The book of Galatians chapter 5 Verses 19 through 21 says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know sometimes, myself included, but we preachers, we try to, you know, gain some sort of response. I don't want you to respond to this. I don't want you to answer out loud. But I ask you in a personal way between you and the Lord right now, which of these is your temptation? Which of these things that we find here in the book of Galatians that are acts of the flesh, that are sin, which of these is your temptation? We know that every single one of us, we find that we are naturally more susceptible to some than we are to others. So I want us to look at a few things about this story as we begin to dive into it. The first thing is we find that spiritual warfare is a part of your life that never goes away. Somebody say, oh, no. Oh, come on now. That's pitiful. Somebody say, oh, no. <laughs> in the book of 2 Samuel, you go back. If you want to keep your Bible open, we're going to be right here in chap- mostly in chapter 12, but also in chapter 11 for this verse. If you go back to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, the very first verse, it says, In the spring at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. You know, all throughout the Bible, we find those those buts. And sometimes those are good buts, but sometimes those are bad buts. Somebody say amen. Sometimes people are in trouble and it looks like everything's about to go bad. And then you see a but. God steps in. But then sometimes we find some things going and everything's going all right, but we find but and it goes bad. This one is a bad one. You see, it doesn't matter how old or how, and I want you to notice this, how spiritual I put that in quotations that you get. Spiritual warfare never goes away in your life. I'm going to say that one more time. It doesn't matter how old or how spiritual you get, spiritual warfare never goes away. You know, I've been at this most of my life. I'm 43 years old now. To some here, I'm old. To some, I'm young. Wherever you find yourself. But I've been well around a lot of people that have been at the end of their life, at the end of their spiritual journey, and they have agreed and they have confirmed it to me. It doesn't matter how old you get. There is always spiritual warfare that is going on. And can I say this? I found this. The older I get, you know, when you're young, 
young, and even at this 9 o'clock service, you know, we got a few college students still scattered out. But even when you're young, it seems like it's spiritual warfare just for you. But now as I'm getting older and having children and I'm seeing different ones around me, I feel that not only does the spiritual warfare affect just me, but now it begins to affect those I love and those I care about, my family and those that I pastor. Spiritual warfare is something that never goes away. And if you ever get lax in your prayer life, you will leave yourself vulnerable to sin. I just need you to hear me today and take note of this. Do not let your prayer life get lax. It is important, it is imperative, it is necessary that we as the children of God have a prayer life, otherwise we'll leave ourselves vulnerable and open to sin. Somebody say amen. In the book of Luke chapter 14 and verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, who was he tempting here? He was tempting Jesus. He left him until an opportune time. Take notice here that this temptation takes place during a certain season. You see, I believe like so many other things, temptations come in seasons. The enemy will bring temptations into your life in certain seasons. So let's get here to chapter 12, to this story that we find in the Scripture. We're actually really going back to chapter 11 that brings us to chapter 12. We find the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, I've, I've used to, you know, you would kind of just stop for a second and you'd say, well, I just know y'all know this story. I'm just going to take, take it for granted that you do, but I can't do that anymore because we're living in a very illiterate, biblically illiterate society, so I'm going to stop for a moment. The story that we encounter here is we find the, the story of a king whose name was David. David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. David had killed a giant named Goliath with just his little sling, knocked him out cold through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, took the giant's own sword, cut his head off. He had been a powerful man of God had run from a wicked king for years until finally after he had been after David had been anointed the next king over Israel finally had taken the throne but here in this story we find in chapter 11 that David I read you that very first verse and I told you that there were some bad buts in the Bible also and the bad but was that David had remained in Jerusalem when David was supposed to be out fighting battles I'll come back to that in a minute and while he was there at home instead of out where he was supposed to be, okay, I can't go past. Can I just tell you sometimes don't, don't get yourself in places you don't need to be. Oh, man, that was pitiful. <laughs> don't get yourself in places you don't need to be because if you allow yourself to get in places you're not supposed to be, you'll find yourself in a mess. Somebody say Amen. And while David was at a place that he wasn't really supposed to be, he looks out and sees something. He wasn't really supposed to see. He looks down off of his balcony there in the palace, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he looks at her, and he lusts after her. And then he doesn't just, you know, he doesn't just see her and turn away and say, I don't need to look at that. But he continues to look, and he continues to allow it to go on in his mind. And then he begins to send word. He said, I need to find out who that good-looking girl is. And, of course, he's the king. He's got plenty of power and prestige and servants. And so he sends word. He said, find out who that is. And they said, well, that's, that's Bathsheba. Uh, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so after he checks her out for a little bit, he sends word. He's like, send her up. I don't want to talk to that girl. 
and talking leads to other things, and we find then that he sleeps with her. She goes home, and after a little while, she sends word back that she has now become pregnant with David's baby. David now finds himself in a bind. He has now committed adultery. He finds himself in a mess, and so what does he do? He said, I'm going to get myself out of this mess. Can I stop right here and just tell you, you cannot get yourself out of your sin mess. You'll only get yourself in more mess. David thought, I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to make this all. I got a plan. He hatched a scheme. He said, I'm, he sent word to the battlefield where Bathsheba's husband was out there on the battlefield where he was supposed to be also. And so Uriah comes back. He say, hey, Uriah, tell me about what's going on. Tell me about the battle. Tell me what's happening. He comes in, gives a report to David. And David's like, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just go clean up and go home. And, you know, he didn't say it, but he was hoping, go home and sleep with your wife. And then, you know, everything will be all right. It'll be a good cover-up. But David gets word and says, Uriah, he didn't go home last night. He slept in the gate with the servants. So the next day, David calls Uriah. He said, hey, Uriah, what's going on? I, I heard that you didn't go home last night. And Uriah was like, king, I just I didn't feel right. He said, he said, Joab and all of my fellow soldiers, they are out there in the battlefield. They're sleeping in tents, sleeping in the fields. They, I can't go home and sleep in my comfortable home and sleep with my wife and feel right about it. Man, can you imagine that? Here it is. Can you imagine? Man, God will put you in some situations sometimes, won't he? Here it is. David's like, he done been sleeping with his wife. And, and now this man who could rightly do so says, I don't even want to do what is really okay for me to do because I don't even feel good about it. So David then, he hatches another plan. And he says, I'm going to tell you what. He invites Uriah back to the palace that night. He gets old Uriah, he gets him drunk as a skunk. He's like, you know what? I get him a belly full of food. I get him drunk. He's going to go. He ain't got no choice. He's going to stagger on home. Bathsheba knows what to do, and this will all be all right. But what happens? The Bible said that Uriah didn't. He went back to the gate and slept there with the servants. So David then hatched another scheme. He said, this is what I've got to do. And so we put a letter together to Joab, his general, and says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to put Uriah on the front lines where the hottest fighting is going on. He said, I need to put you to put him on the front. I need you to push forward into the hardest, hottest part of the battle. And as soon as Uriah gets right in the middle of it, I want you to pull the rest of the forces back and kill Uriah. And to top it all off, what does he do? He writes this letter seals it with a king's seal, and does what? Hands it to Uriah himself to deliver it to Joab in the battlefield. And so he takes it, Joab reads it, and Joab, if you read any of this or if you know anything about the story, I know since I've been here, I've preached several messages around the life of David and have mentioned to you a book by Mark Rutland about David. And if you, you study about Joab, Joab was not the spiritual advisor for, he was the fighter, he was the warrior, he was not the spiritual. So Joab gets this letter and he's like, all right, whatever you want. So that exactly that happens. Uriah is put out onto the front lines and, and Joab pulls the army back at the time where it's the hottest and Uriah dies. Bathsheba weeps. David lets her weep for a little while. And then like the great king, 
gives her comfort and brings her into the palace, marries her, and he thinks that everything is just going to be okay. He thinks he's covered all of his bases. He thinks everything's on. Nobody's ever going to know until we get to verse, to, excuse me, chapter 12, where we started reading our text and we find Nathan the prophet showed up. And notice something here. As he's talking, Nathan then begins to tell David a story. He begins to tell him a story. Of course, we know that this is just a parable. He's leading up to what he's about to tell David. But Nathan talks about a poor man that only had one little lamb, a lamb that he loved, a lamb that he cared about so much. But there was a rich man who had so much, but then a traveler showed up at the rich man's house. And the rich man takes the one little lamb of the poor man for himself. So we notice here that the rich man did this terrible deed to please the traveler. The rich man, though he had much, though he had so many things, he decided that he was going to do this terrible thing in order to please the traveler. Can I just tell you something I have found in life? And listen, I've been guilty of it myself. But so many times we people, we find ourselves for some reason or another trying to please somebody that don't even really matter. We as people, we get in our mind that somebody for some reason is way more important that they, than they really are. And we get in our minds that we've got to please this person or please this group. And this rich man decides, I, I've got to please this traveler that has come my way. I want to stop this morning on Super Bulldog Sunday and ask somebody, have you ever found yourself trying to please the wrong person? Have you ever found yourself under pressure and you find yourself trying to please a person or a group that really in the whole scheme of things doesn't really matter anyway? I'm not going to stand up here and act all holiest and sanctimonious like I never have. I've been there before. And you find yourself trying to please somebody that don't even really matter at all. We find that the traveler came to him hungry. Can I just tell you when the traveler shows up, he's coming hungry. When the traveler shows up, he's coming as somebody that's ready to devour. We'll get to that in a little bit later. So we ask, who is this traveler? I believe it's pretty clear in the book of Job, chapter 2, chapter two and verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. May I submit to you today that I believe that there is a traveler whose name is Satan. You can call him Lucifer. You can call him Satan. You can call him Slewfoot. You can call him whatever you want to. But I believe that it is this one, this individual, this, uh, this accuser of the brethren as the Bible calls him. The one whom Jesus said he had come to steal, to kill, and destroy. He is the traveler, I believe, that showed up at David's door. And I believe that he's the traveler that even today in 2023 will show up at our doors if we're not careful. You see, temptation is not something that continues all the time. You see, if you have a continual problem with sin, the first thing you need to do really is repent and live for God. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> I still believe we need to be saved. 
Listen, I know a lot of churches, they've gone to the place where it just seems like it's a self-help. The sermon is just a, a self-help message, you know, chicken soup for the soul. Listen, that, it, that's not all that this is about. I, yes, I hope and I pray that church helps us and edifies us and encourages us. But can I tell you, I could preach the best sermon that I've ever preached in my life, but really that doesn't really amount to anything if I'm not preaching and teaching and, and promoting the fact that in order for us to make it to heaven, we must be born again. I'm going to stand from this pulpit this morning and tell you that I am wholeheartedly saying that it's great to be a member of the church. It's great to pay your tithes. It's great to be on a team and serve somewhere in the church. But we must, above all things, make sure that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we have been born again, that we have confessed our sins to him and allowed him to come and take residence in our lives. We must be born again however even when we're saved a new creature in Christ the traveler goes around looking looking for a moment of discouragement looking for a moment of sickness looking for a moment of distraction or laxness the traveler gets a report the prayer shield is down he sets you up with a temptation you see I need to remind you that the enemy is limited in his resources and power. Can I tell you that Satan, he is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. And he is not omnipresent. He is not all places at all times. Those three qualities belong only to God Almighty. Can I just remind you, it's a, I never thought about this, never really thought about it, but, but it came to my attention through some young people. Can I tell you that Satan can't read your mind? Satan is limited in his power, and he is going to do only where he sees a hole, a weakness, or a gap. Luke chapter 22 and verse 40 said, on reaching the place, he said to them, this is Jesus telling the disciples, he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13, again, Jesus here teaching the disciples how to pray. He said, pray this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, you can't help being tempted, but you shouldn't fall in it. I'm going to say that one more time. You can't help being tempted, but you shouldn't fall in it. Being tempted is not a sin. But Jesus Christ was tempted, but we know that he was sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But you can be tempted. Being tempted is not a sin, but you don't need to fall in it. Jesus, I read it. I'm going to read it again, Luke 22 and 40. He said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Temptation will come your way, child of God. Temptation will come your way. Saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost-filled believer temptation's going to come your way but you don't have to fall into it thirdly don't ever think it can't happen to you back in second samuel chapter 12 look at verse 5 we've just read nathan has just come in with this story david burned with anger against the man and said to nathan as surely as the lord lives the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 
I'm going to put your finger right there. I'm not quite done, but I'm going to stop. David knew, oh, I ain't never stole a lamb from nobody. <laughs> Y'all ain't going to like where I'm about to take this. Oh, I ain't never stole nothing from nobody. I ain't never took nobody's lamb. I, I'm enraged that someone would dare do anything like this. Boy, it's always easy to get mad over somebody else's sin, ain't it? It's always easy to get sanctimonious and holier than thou when you're looking at somebody else's sin. Oh, I've never done that. How could this happen, Nathan? This, I mean, he's going to have to pay it back four times. What, who is this? Who did such a thing? Are you all ready? Verse 5 again, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man that did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Don't you know, David's heart, suddenly it all came flashing back to him. Suddenly he remembered Uriah's face as he handed him his own death certificate basically to take to Joab in the battlefield. David probably thought, Psh, that could never happen to me. After all, I'm a man after God's own heart. I mean, the Bible says that about him, don't it? I mean, he's, I mean, the Bible says David was a man of God. said it to David. He said it through Samuel. He said, you're a man. I'm going to promote you. I'm going to anoint you. I'm going to bless you because why? You're a man after my own heart. David probably thought that kind of stuff could never happen to me. I'm a man after God's own heart. We're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Temptation doesn't come to you in your moment of faith. It happens when your guard is down and you're weak. Satan didn't try to tempt Jesus until he had gone 40 days without food because Satan knew that Jesus' physical body was weak. He didn't even dare try to tempt Jesus until after 40 days Jesus had not eaten a single thing, and Satan then came to tempt you. Can I tell you something? The Lord, the, the enemy is not going to come and tempt you while you're in church and feeling the power of God, fired up and praying. He's going to come in a moment of weakness when he knows you're vulnerable. So we find the Lord responds fourthly here. Look at the second half. We're going to start back in, chapter, in, excuse me, in verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You know, at first it sounds as though God is saying, how could you do this to me after all I did for you? And, you know, as people, we do lean that direction. Come on, how many of you ever done a lot for somebody and then they just mess it all up or turn around and stab you in the back? You, you, we, it's humans, that's it. But notice that that's not really the real point here of the Lord. I want you to see a couple things, and I know we're running out of time here. I want you to see a couple things here. Notice the innocent party's name. His name is Uriah 
the Hittite. So in other words, he wasn't an Israelite. He was a Hittite. You see, when they went to the land of Canaan, God told them in Joshua 3.10 and Numbers 33 and 55 to drive out the Hittites from the land. Are you all ready for this? So the first thing we're dealing here with here is a generational curse, an old problem that should have been taken care of by his great-grandfather. Now, when we get into these things, I know there's a lot of differing opinions, and a lot of people have a different—and I'm just going to be honest. To me, it's not a heaven or hell issue. You can disagree with me. That's fine. But I do, and I have wrestled with this for—I've been pastoring almost 20 years, preaching longer than that, been in church. I've wrestled around with this, and I know there's some that say there's no such thing as generational curses. Some say there is generational curses. I've just got to be honest with you. Everything I've studied, and not just what I've studied in the Word, what I have seen in life, I do believe in this thing called generational curses. You could call it, you could say whatever you want. Maybe you can call it genetics. You can call it whatever you want. But I have seen too much to just push aside the fact that there are people and families that seem to struggle with the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And this issue would have never happened if great-great-grandfather had driven out the Hittites like they were supposed to. But here's the good news. You say, Pastor, well, it sounds like it's hopeless. Absolutely not. I don't believe that you have to live under a generational curse anymore. You can take care of it. You can fix it. Your great-great-granddaddy, your great-granddaddy, your granddaddy, your daddy may have been a raving alcoholic, but can I tell you, I believe that the power and the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross of Calvary, every generational curse can be broken through the power of the cross if you will be the one to decide, I'm cutting it off. I don't want it to go any further. It's been around for too long. I don't want my sons, I don't want my daughters to have to deal with this. I choose to break this thing. The first reason you should not enter or fall into temptation is because you're not the only one that's going to get hurt. Look back with me again. I told you we'd be in chapter 11 also. Chapter 11, verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, (laughs) the king's anger may, may flare up. And he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob, Basheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? Put your finger right there. Joab knows David. David was not about losing battles. And he knew that Joab, as as a general, as David's right-hand man, he knew that David was not going to be happy about hearing that one of his men, that that one of these men had been died, that he had died by a woman throwing a millstone off of there. What is going on? And so uh, Joab, again, he wasn't the most godly person, but he's pretty smart. He says, if he asks you this, then say to him also, your servant Uriah. The Hittite is dead. In other words, David was going to call into question, why is Abimelech dead? 
Why did you go about the strategy like you did? Why is Abimelech, he was a good soldier. Why did you do this, Joab? And Joel reminded him without nobody but him and David knowing, you the one that had to have Uriah killed. Let me just tell you this. Abimelech had nothing to do with it, but Abimelech got caught in the crossfire. Temptation and sin is not going to just hurt you. It's going to hurt people around you. Uriah means flame of God. Hittite means fear. His name means the fear of the flame of God. So when God asked David why he killed Uriah the Hittite after all you'd done for him, God was actually saying, have you lost your fear of me? Have you no more reverence for the Almighty? David, you didn't just commit adultery against me or Uriah. You committed adultery against me. God is saying, David, son, are you getting a little bit too big for your britches? Have you forgotten who brought you here? Have you forgotten you were just a little shepherd boy out in the field? And it was me that brought you and promoted me. It was me that blessed you. Oh, praise God. Listen, I don't know, I don't know where God's going to take everybody in this room. You know, that's one thing about pastoring right here in this college. Now, you never know about what student's going to come through here and what they're going to do in their life and the great things that God's going to do. But can I just talk to somebody while we're all sitting right here in this little sanctuary together today? No matter what God does through you, no matter how God blesses you, no matter what heights he takes you to, don't you ever forget that it is God and God Almighty that has blessed you and promoted you and taken care of you always maintain the fear of the Lord. Now, adultery sounds like a big sin, but it's in the same category as hatred, jealousy, envying, dividing the brethren, selfish ambitions, controlling others, dressing provocatively, which is lewdness, fornication, which is sex out of marriage, and the like. Listen, this all sin to the Lord. I got to keep on. Number five, sin has lasting earthly consequences. Back to chapter 12, verse 10. Now therefore, this is Nathan speaking to David, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Put your finger right there. Unfortunately, that actually, it's David's son that does that very thing. Verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Even when the sin is forgiven and forgotten by God when repented of, washed away by the blood of Jesus, it can still have lasting consequences in this life. Listen, I'm not telling you, I believe Jesus' precious blood that he shed, that we've celebrated just this past weekend through Good Friday and him on the cross and Easter Sunday, him raising, rising from the dead, 
it can wash away our sins. It's forgotten. It's as far as away as the east is from the west when it comes to eternity. Just like David and Nathan said, hey, man, you are forgiven God. He's done with that. However, sin still here on this earth has lasting consequences. He said the sword will never depart from your house. Your adversity will come from within your own house. It was never an outside force that caused David. So it's true. He, he, he won every battle he ever fought outside of his house. It was the inner turmoil. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sins. You are not going to die. God has already forgiven you. He's a big God. He has a big heart with big shoulders, and he already forgave you. Please don't leave this room today or listening to this and thinking, my God, he's not going to forgive me. My sin's too big. That's not true at all. God told David through Nathan, you're already forgiven. I've already forgiven you. I'm not going to hold this against you in the courts of eternity. I need you to hear me today. I don't care how bad you think you've sinned or messed up. There is no sin too great that Jesus Jesus' blood cannot wash away, that God cannot forgive you for in eternity. Then in verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David, God saw you, forgave you, and it's over. But here's the real problem. Are you ready for this? The real problem is that you opened up the door to the traveler. He now has ammunition against your mind that he didn't have before. And we find that this manifests itself in the lack of discipline of his children. Because of his own guilt, he didn't properly correct his own children. I have to believe because I've, I've experienced it before with different, you mess up in some way, and then you're afraid, you feel like you feel so condemned by what you've done that you're afraid to, to ever say anything to anybody else about it. Maybe I'm the only one, but <laughs> David here, we find that because of what he did, he opened the door to the traveler. And the traveler got to come in. The traveler then had ammunition in his mind. The enemy can't read your thoughts, but he sure can implant. He can whisper some to you. And I believe that every time he tried to correct his children, the enemy was there whispering in his ear, David, how can you act that way to your kids? You know what you did. How are you going to look at your children like you're so holy and so good when, when you cheated, when, when you took that woman that was not your own? How can you look so holy when you killed a man? And not only did you kill uh, uh, Uriah, Abimelech then got killed in the crossfire. Also, how can you do that? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever done that before. I got a feeling there's some more here that you found yourself in that position also, that even though the enemy can't read your thoughts, he sure can whisper that junk into your ear and make you feel guilty so that you don't do what you should do. God loves you and forgave you, but you let the traveler in your house, David. David, no doubt, probably said, oh, Nathan, what have I done? What can I do about this? Stop sinning now. Start doing right now. You may have lost this season, but you can still win the next season. 
It's not over for you. I don't want anybody to leave this place. I'm about to shut this thing down. But I don't want anybody to leave this place after hearing this message and thinking, well, it's just all over. I messed up too bad. Absolutely not. I want you to hear the word from the Lord and know that it is not too late for you. You may have messed up. You may have sinned. You may have done some very bad things. You may have opened the door and let the traveler, the enemy, Satan, stick his foot in the door and start weaseling his way in. But I came to tell somebody today there's still hope for the next season. You may have lost the last season. You may have lost before. But there is hope in Jesus Christ right here and right now that you can walk in victory. Amen. So here we are. I'm sh- i, I got to finish. This is the very last thing. I'm going to give this to you if you're taking notes. Number six, strategy for winning the battle against temptation. Look at chapter 12 and verse 29. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. So what is the strategy? First, strategy, first of all, finish the battle, end it once and for all. David did what? He finally got up and did what he was supposed to be doing in the first place. Too many people, we mess up in, in lots of stuff. We mess up and we get off track, and what do we do? We're just like, I quit. Come on, somebody. Come on now. You, you, you can't quit. Listen, I, I, got, I got track folks right here. Listen, if you start slow down, if you stumble, you don't just stop, do you? I mean, if you run in the race and you stumble a little bit, and you don't just like, I'm going back to the locker room. Absolutely not. Why do we as Christians do that? So what you stumble? So what you fall down? So what you messed up? Repent to the Lord and pick yourself back up. David should have been out there to start with, but he wasn't. And he messed up, and it cost him a whole lot. But finally, he does what? He picks himself up. He puts his armor back on. In fact, Joab had said, you better get over here. I'm going to get this city, and I'm going to take the credit. And David put his armor back on and stood where the king should stand. And he began to fight the battle again. God sent me here this morning to tell somebody, pick up your sword again. Pick up your shield again. Put your armor armor back on again. Don't you quit. Don't you stop. Get up and do what you should have done in the first place. Don't let the enemy win. Finish it. Start a consistent prayer life today. Start a consistent prayer life today. Matthew 26 and 41. I read this already, but I'm going to read it again. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing the flesh is weak the answer for not falling into temptation Jesus says it is pray what else you need to do there's a way of escape so take it 1 Corinthians 10 and 13 no temptation has overtaken you such as, but such is common to man but God is there's one of them good butts right there But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Somebody say, take the way of escape. Don't allow yourself to get into compromising positions. Genesis 39, 6 through 13, Joseph gives us the correct way to do it. He gets himself in a compromising situation. He did what? He ran. 
How else? What else is the winning strategy? Get close to God. James 4 and 8, draw near unto God and he will draw near to you. Finally, start chasing the right thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Thanks for listening to our podcast. To find out more about us, follow us on social media at StarkvilleCOG. Special thanks to those who generously support this ministry. If you would like to give, visit us at StarkvilleCOG.com forward slash give. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.